Psalm chapter 66. And in this particular psalm, we begin to learn some things about the Lord and his capability to answer prayer. Because if you look down at the end of this uh, particular chapter of the book of Psalms, you, re- you see this in uh, verse eight, uh, pardon me, 19. But certainly God has heard me. He has attended to the voice of my prayer. And in this case, the psalmist would say, yes, prayer works, but there are a variety of reasons for which he would be able to say that. It's not because of a lack on God's part. God does not lack the power to answer any request that we would bring before him. Is there anything too hard for God? And the answer to that is, no, there's not. So the psalmist begins to tell us very clearly that this power that God has is is awesome. His deeds are awesome. Look at what it says in the first four verses once again. It says, make a joyful shout to God, all the earth. Sing out the honor of his name. Make his praise glorious. Say to God, how awesome are your works? How awesome are your deeds? Through the greatness of your power, your enemies shall submit themselves to you. All the earth shall worship you and sing praises to you. They shall sing praises to your name. When the psalmist is writing this, what could possibly be going through his mind to exalt this this awesome power and the awesome work of God? Well, all he has to do is look around, and he sees in creation this awesome power of God. I'm glad that uh, Larry was making reference to the different names that the Lord has uh, by which he goes. And, and by those names, there is a constant repetition through a variety of different names that he gives himself that define his awesome power, his incredible capability to do everything that is not contrary to his nature. You look at creation, and what do you see? You see power that we are not able to even grasp because it is so incredibly great. And then we look at that power and we say, well, that was an incredible thing that God did in the past. We don't often think of it in these terms. His wrath is a demonstration of his incredible power. When John was recording the events that are to take place yet in the future, he tells us that by the hand of God, wrath will be outpoured upon the earth that will be an incredible testimony to the greatness of his power and the greatness of his deeds. In Psalm chapter 46, verses 8 through 10, you can read through that on your own and you will see again this reference to his power. And then when you come to uh, Revelation chapter 15, if you'd care to, just turn back to that very quickly. Revelation chapter 15 And what you notice in this particular chapter is a recognition of the awesomeness of God's deeds, the awesomeness of his power, and then immediately following that, you'll notice as it moves into chapter 16, it says this, Then I heard a loud voice from the temple saying to the seven angels, Go and pour out the bowls of the wrath of God on the earth. Now, if your Bible has the little divisions that many of the Bibles do. You'll notice that it goes into the sea turning to blood and then the waters turning to blood in verse 4. 
you drop down to verse 8, and men are scorched by the, the tremendous heat of the sun. In, in chapter, or verse 10, the darkness and the pain that comes along with that. Verse 12, the Euphrates being dried up. That's so the armies from the east will be able to make their way toward Jerusalem for that final battle. And then you find in verse 17, the earth utterly shaken. And you look at these elements of God's wrath that will be poured out, and again you say the incredible power of God. He is going to shake the creation. As a matter of fact, he is going to destroy the creation and create a new heaven and a new earth. Does God have the power to answer your prayers? Absolutely. You go beyond that, and you'll notice this as well. The psalmist is really making reference to an event that took place in his life. Now, you'll notice in in the beginning of this psalm, it does not identify this as a psalm of David. And that's because David was not the author of this psalm. You're, You're all aware that the psalms have been written by a variety of different people, most of which were written by David, but there were many others that wrote as well. In this case, this psalm was probably written by a man by the name of Hezekiah. Hezekiah had been the king of Israel in the 6th century before Christ. Um, He was reigning in Israel. Now, now let me back up, okay? I have to clarify this. At this point in, in history, the nation of Israel had been divided in two. The northern tribes were known as Israel. The southern tribes were known as Judah because it was primarily Judah that remained uh, faithful to the line of David. You, You can read this on your own as you go back through the Old Testament. So anyway, here is this division. In the north, the king has followed the pattern of all of his predecessors. These were not descendants from David. They were all wicked kings. And God declared that he would bring judgment upon the people of Israel because of the wickedness of the lives that they were living, and they were living in light of the patterns that were set by their leaders. Hmm. God brought judgment upon the north, Israel, by using a terribly violent, militaristic, loathsome group of people known as the Assyrians. In 722 B.C., and many of you will remember that date from previous studies that we've had, the northern kingdom fell to the Assyrians. Hezekiah had become king in the south. He was 25 years old when he became the king. Six years after he became the king, the Assyrians took down the north. So he's in his early 30s now. I mean, he is still, uh, from my point of view, a very, very young man. And I look at the the experience that he has had, and now the pressure that's coming down upon him because Sennacherib, the king of the Assyrians, has made a threat. The threat has basically been held back because the southern tribes had been paying tribute 
to the Assyrians. As a matter of fact, as you read through the, the segment that, that gives us this record, you'll find that all of the gold and, and all of the precious things that had been part of the temple had been taken out so that they could be given to the, the king of Assyria. Uh, one of the negative things that happened was Hezekiah tried to make an alliance with Egypt for protection, but that alliance never really amounted to anything. The Bible does tell us that Hezekiah had done what the Lord wanted him to do. He was a godly man, certainly not perfect, but a man who honestly tried to pursue the Lord and wanted to walk closely with him. Well, Sennacherib wasn't satisfied with the tribute that he was receiving. So he decided he's going to invade the south. And under his leadership, his armies moved to the south, and they encamp in Samaria. Now, the northern tribes were known as Israel. They're also identified as Samaria. That was uh, another term to use them. Uh, used for them because Samaria was the capital and Samaria was toward the southern part of the northern kingdom. And now this army has gathered there and now they're beginning to make their way down into Judah. Hezekiah is approached by the emissary of uh, Sennacherib. Um, I forget. doesn't matter. The guy... A big shot. He, he comes to uh, the city of Jerusalem and he begins to cry out in the language of the people of Judah the threat that's coming from the Assyrians and from Sennacherib. He says, listen, no matter what you have been trusting in, you're going to fail. You trust in your army? Don't you see what we've done to all the other armies? You, you trust in your God. Wasn't he the same God that the north trusted in? Um, he didn't seem to do anything. As a matter of fact, we're going to give you horses and chariots if you have enough fighting men to put on them. I mean, you're, you're talking about you know how fighters today talk smack to each other? Like the Pacquiao, uh, not, not, not Pacquiao, um, Mayweather, the Mayweather fight last night, which he won by unanimous decision. Apparently he got bit. Seems to be a trend. Back on track. <laughs> how did I get, now that I'm off track, Penn State won too. Okay, um, just, just to bring you in and, and let you know the important news of the day. Anyway, um, this man is, is giving this threat, and all of the people are hearing it, and, and basically what he's telling them is this. We're going to bring you to your knees so badly that you're going to be eating your own waste. That's how bad it is. Hezekiah gets the word, sends to Isaiah the prophet, what is God telling us at a time like this? And then the Bible tells us that Hezekiah went before God and he prayed. And as he prayed, the answer of the Lord came back to him and said, before this week's over, Sennacherib's going to go back home and he will be taken care of there. 
The Bible says that the Lord sent an angel into the camp of the Assyrians. And in one night, 185,000 of the army died. Sennacherib wakes up. And he looks around and his army is gone. He flees back to his own country, Assyria, which was to the north of Israel. He goes into the temple of his God. And his sons come in and assassinate him. Do you think Hezekiah believed God had the power to answer his prayer? I mean, would you look at something like that and say, there is no way that something like this could happen. And yet, when we get to the last part of this chapter, God has heard me. He has attended to the voice of my prayer. Why? Because he has the power. He has the capability. He has all that is necessary to do everything that might come our way. Christ, when he was walking the the face of this earth in the flesh, confronted demons who would bring great distress to the people. And they would flee from him. They would cry out and say, it's not our time for judgment yet. Why? Because greater is he that's in us than he that is in the world. Sometimes people feel that they are going under satanic attacks. And you might be. But God's power is not limited by the demon's power. God's capability is not limited by anything other than his perfect will. And the objective of our prayers should be to come into line with his will. So, Hezekiah tells us right here, God doesn't remain silent because he doesn't have the power. There's something else going on. He tells us that he does not remain silent because he lacks interest in us. Look at verses 5 down through verse 7. Come and see the works of God. He is awesome in his doing toward the sons of men. He turned the sea into dry land. They went through the river on foot. There we will rejoice in him. He rules by his power forever. His eyes observe the nations. Do not let the rebellious exalt themselves. Look at the way that Hezekiah identifies this interest that God has. He makes reference to the deliverance that God brought to the people of Israel. He makes reference to the fact that as they were leaving the, the land of Egypt, when they got to the, to, to the Red Sea, you remember that what confronted them was the sea on one side, the Egyptian army on the other, and there was no escape. Did God care? Absolutely. What did he do? He divided the waters. And the children of Israel walked through on dry ground, and when the Egyptian army tried to follow, the waters collapsed on them, and they were destroyed. Does God have an interest in his people? Look, look at how he deals with the enemy. Uh, if you'll notice, uh, throughout this, this uh, chapter, you're going to find, if you go back up to verse 3, it says, through the greatness of your power, your enemies shall submit themselves to you. Is there an enemy that we deal with that God does not have the interest in us to deliver us from? That was a bad sentence. But do you understand what I just said? 
The Lord delivers us from whatever enemy can come our way. And he has that capability. He delivers from trouble. He delivers from hardship. In his time, according to his will. Hezekiah understood that. He went on in that same verse, verse 6, and you, you read down to the next phrase where it says, Then they went through the river on foot. So this is more than the Lord having an interest in his people enough to deliver them. Now he has an interest in his people to help them on their way of conquest. Because the first time that the Lord divided the waters, it was to rescue the people of Israel. When he divided the Jordan, do you remember what it was for? They they were going into Israel, the land that they were going to possess. They were moving into the land of Canaan where they were going to come face to face with enemies, but God said, I have given you this land and now in your conquest, I'm going to give it to you as you defeat the enemy. It's not just the Lord saying to us, I can deliver you, but he's saying this, when it's time to move forward, I can move you forward. Just stop and think for a moment what what that means and the implications that that has have for us. Little over fifty years ago, a spiritual conquest took place along Forty Eighth Street, and God raised up Grace Baptist Church. Then, two years later, he placed within the heart of his people the need to make a spiritual impact upon the lives of young people as they are growing and support families in their effort to raise their children for the glory of God. And a place called Highlands Christian Academy began. Do you understand that that was conquest? That was a spiritual victory. And there have been times that from a human point of view, this could not continue. And God said, no, I'm interested in you. And I'm going to see to it that this work goes on. And you all are a testimony to that. Do you remember? This is easy to forget. Do you remember what almost happened to that house right next door? Uh, But you haven't thought about that for a while, have you? Those of you who may not be familiar with this, that brick house to the west of our property was to be sold to essentially a group of demon worshipers. They were people who called forth the dead. They would give, uh, oh, what do you call it, the... yeah, like seances, and they, they would uh, do their hocus-pocus and burn their incense and things like that. And essentially, it was an effort to call upon satanic powers, demonic powers, to, in my opinion, come into conflict with what we're doing here. So what did we do? We went to the law. We got the best attorneys you could find in South Florida, and we put a stop. No, we couldn't stop it. There wasn't any legal way to stop it. 
So what do you do? You pray. And what happened? Do you remember what happened? They didn't get the property. It was sold to a Messianic Jewish congregation who worship the same Christ that we worship, and we lock arms with them, calling upon the Savior, they as redeemed Jews, we as redeemed Gentiles. Is God interested in what goes on around here? Absolutely he is. So when he doesn't answer our prayers... It's not because he lacks any interest, and that interest goes right down to us personally. Some of you are able to look back in your lives, and you remember some of the issues that you have faced, and the mountain that stands before you, and you say, I can't get over this. And then you pray, and the Lord says, listen, I care about you more deeply than you have any idea. And though you see things a certain way right here and right now, because all you can do is go by what you see, and then trust me for the rest. You know, if we went around this auditorium and we asked everybody's name, we won't do that. But if we were to do it, you know what I could say following each name? God is interested in you. God is interested in you. God is interested in you. Do you understand that? Can you put your name there and say, Lord, all-powerful God, you're interested in me. And that will never end. Do you notice what the psalmist goes on to say? He goes on to tell us this. He says in verse 7, He rules by his power forever. His eyes are Observe the nations. He's interested in them. Do not let the rebellious exalt themselves. Why? Because, as the psalmist says in in chapter 145, your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and your dominion endures throughout all generations. His interest in us is forever. So if God doesn't answer our prayers, it's not because he doesn't have the power and it's not because he doesn't have the interest. So, what else? Well, as you go down into verse 8, you find out there's another negative there. It's not because he lacks investment. You know, when you invest in something, you expect to get some returns, don't you? Okay? Okay, uh, this, you know, this is a give and take. You, you're allowed to answer. Um, if you invest money in a mutual fund, do you hope that that accumulates additional wealth? Well, of course. You, you want that. If, if you buy a house, you don't do what Debbie and I do. We always buy at the top of the market. That, that's when we buy a place. And then when it's time to sell... Usually it's in a trough, right down here somewhere. And, and the Lord reminds us, uh, I have power, I'm interested in you, I'll take care of you, don't worry. And, and he always has, he always has. And, and uh, you think I'm joking about that, but that's really the truth. That, that has kind of been the experience of our lives. Um, but that's all right. Uh, 
you know, the neat thing is we have never lost anything in the buying and selling. The Lord has lost something. It's his. <laughs> that really failed. That really failed. I, I was hoping you'd get that I'm joking. We didn't lose anything. Oh, Lord, you did. <laughs> no, okay. Anyway. Yeah, that, now it's pity, I know. <laughs> you look for a return on your investment. And the Lord has made an investment from which he desires a return. He invested in our redemption, didn't he? What was the price he paid? Through the person of Jesus Christ. Death on the cross. Christ came into the world to save sinners. Christ carried our sin upon himself. He shed his blood and he died. Th- uh, to be honest with you, I cannot grasp this. But I believe it. But it is beyond my capability to really lay hold of. God the creator came in flesh as a man, had unlimited power, and willingly submitted himself to the death of the cross so that I could be redeemed and that you could be redeemed. What an incredible investment that he made when Paul had gathered a bunch of pastors together. Uh, this was at the, the city of Ephesus, and, and he was saying farewell to them for the last time, he reminded them of something. And he said this in Acts chapter 20, verse 28. Therefore take heed to yourselves and to all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God which he purchased with his own blood. What an investment. I think of the price that Christ paid for my salvation, and it's beyond my comprehension. But it's not beyond my gratitude. And I say thank you. That's all I can say. It's your grace. Thank you. And then he invested in my preservation. There are people who believe that once you accept Christ as Savior, you better hang on to him. Uh, If you're going to get home safely, you better hang on good and tight. And if you start messing up and you start going the wrong way, then God's going to let you go. And we know that that is not the truth. I give to them eternal life and they shall never perish. Neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. Do you know why people believe that you can lose your salvation? They do not understand the depth of the grace of God and the meaning of justification. It isn't what we do. 
It isn't what we have done. It isn't what we're going to do. I know we talked about that last week as well, but we have to understand that redemption is not just about us. Do you understand that when we are redeemed, it is the Father calling us to himself so that he can give us to his Son. And so he seals us with the Holy Spirit until the day of redemption. Not until the day we backslide, not until the day we fail him, not until the day we commit a terrible sin. It isn't about sin. Christ has already paid for the sin. It's about our position in him. And once we are in him, we get home safely because God has invested in our redemption and in our preservation by giving us his Holy Spirit, and we're getting home safe. Isn't that great? I, man, I look at this, and, and I talk to people, and I know they mean well, and I know they're good people, but they say, well, I really think you can slip away from God and lose your salvation, and you know, the, you, you have to understand that you can make the wrong decisions. It isn't about us anymore. We trusted Christ as our Savior, and when we trusted Him, we were placed in His body, and there are no amputations. We belong to him. Now you say, well, pastor, aren't you giving everybody a carte blanche to just kind of go out and live the way they want? Just the opposite. That sets us free to live for the Lord. It means that I can live my life now not worrying whether or not I've really blown it and come out of the body of Christ by virtue of something I've done, but I can wake up tomorrow and if I've really messed up, I can say, Father, because you're still my father. I really messed up. I thank you that through the blood of Jesus Christ, my sins haven't been covered. Did you all catch that? They have been cleansed. They have been cleansed. He invested in our preservation. He invested in our sanctification the psalmist says something that's really interesting down here, and, and I'll have to go through this a little bit quickly, but notice what he says here. Uh, he, he says uh, in verse 10, For you, O God, have tested us, you have refined us as silver is refined. And then he goes on to give some very specific examples. You brought us into the net, you laid affliction on our backs, you have caused men to ride over our heads, we went through fire and through water, but you brought us out to rich fulfillment. What does that mean? It means that through all of the different circumstances of life that God brings our way, he is in the process of refining us into the image of his son. And that means there are times we're going to go through deep waters. We're going to feel like we're trapped in the net. Have you ever seen an animal that's got caught in a net? And, and it's struggling and it's kicking and it's moving in all directions trying to get out of the net. And this net has come over him. Men have walked over him. He's looking at all of the different issues of life that he has gone through. And then he's gone through the, the fire and he's gone through the water. And he says, and what was it for? It was to bring me out into a life of fulfillment of your purpose. And you know what God's purpose is for us? That we be like Christ. That we be like Christ.
You think God hasn't invested a whole lot? It's not over yet. He's invested in all of our welfare. You get down to the end of verse 12, and what do you see? You have caused men to ride over our heads. We went through fire and through water, but you brought us out to rich fulfillment. It's not just getting us through the battles. It's enriching our lives as we go through. Do you know what Hezekiah was able to do when he went before the Lord in this threat from Sennacherib? In his mind, he could say, Lord, when I was going through that terrible trial, you delivered me. And Lord, when this test came my way and I thought everything was collapsing on me, you delivered me. Lord, you've given me the pattern of what you're doing. And that pattern is to make me like my Savior. And sometimes that's best done in the valleys. It's best done in the hard times. And when it's over, I'm going to enrich you so that your life becomes more like the life of my Son and your Savior. So if it's not power, if it's not interest, if it's not investment, what's the problem? Verse 13 begins to open it up for us. The problem is because of our lack. What do we lack? Well, if you go to verse 15, I want you to look at this with me. It says this. Well, let me begin in verse 13. That's actually where I should begin. I will go into your house with burnt offerings. I will pay you my vows, which my lips have uttered and my mouth has spoken when I was in trouble. Oh, (laughs) you know, sometimes people say, you know, people make deals with God. Well, it appears that in a way, that's what Hezekiah did. He made vows while he was in trouble. He made promises to God. And now he's saying, now I'm going to fulfill those because God delivered me. And then he says in verse 15, I will offer you burnt sacrifices of fat animals with the sweet aroma of rams. I will offer bulls with goats. He's just told us something extremely important. The only way you can come into the presence of a God, of the God who has infinite power, has incredible interest, and has made tremendous investment into our lives is to come with the right sacrifice. You could not come before God with a wrong sacrifice. You didn't sacrifice a toad. You didn't sacrifice a turtle. God prescribed the sacrifices and what Hezekiah is saying is this. I came to you with the right sacrifices just the way you prescribed. And sometimes people today say this. Well, God can't answer, or God doesn't answer my prayers and I don't understand why. And the reason is you're not one of his children. You've not come with the right sacrifice. What is it that allows us into the presence of a holy God? It is the fact that we have been clothed in the righteousness of Christ. He has become our sacrifice. And until you trust Christ as your Savior, you do not have the right to come into the presence of a holy God. Listen, I'm not kidding about that. I think there are some people... Now, is God in his infinite capability and his infinite knowledge, his his omniscience, does he hear everybody's prayer? Yes. But does he... 
listen to everybody's prayer. No. He listens to his children. And until you come with the right sacrifice, you don't come before God. You're not allowed to come. I want you to listen to a passage that's extremely important, and it's one for us to understand, because sometimes people will say something like this. Well, the Muslims, they all worship the same God that we do. No, they don't. They're not even close to the God that we worship. And I'm not just talking about ISIS. I'm talking about the really nice, quiet, calm, peaceful Muslim. They're not worshiping our God. Why? Because they don't recognize Jesus. Even the Jews do not worship our God. Oh, now it's going to get quiet. Do you understand? They are not worshiping our God. They can't. You can only come to our God through Christ. And if you deny Christ and you deny who he is and you deny what he has done, you are not coming before God as a child of his. You're a counterfeit. Listen to what Paul said to the Ephesians. He is talking here specifically about the Jews and the Gentiles. He's saying there's these two groups. There are the Jews and there are the Gentiles. And then he says this. For he himself, speaking of Christ, is our peace, who has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of separation, having abolished in his flesh the enmity that is the law of the commandments contained in ordinances, so as to create in himself one new man from the two. It's it's. The connection we have with our, our brothers and sisters in Christ over here at the Messianic house. We, we're one with them. We have a bond with them. But I can't go to the synagogue and say I have a bond with them. Why? Listen. It says that he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross, thereby putting to death the enmity. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and to those who were near. For through him, we both, Jew and Gentile, have access by one spirit to the Father. Do you get it? Unless you're coming through Christ, you're coming the wrong way. You can't come to God through any other means. That's why if you are trusting in any other sacrifice, my good works, my baptism, my church membership, my being a nice person, my giving to the church, my this, my that, my other thing, you are not bringing the right sacrifice. You cannot come into the presence of God as a child of his. You can only come into his presence when you trust in Jesus Christ as your Savior. That's it. Uh. This seems to happen a lot, doesn't it? Some lack earnestness. Let me just mention this. The Bible says that God is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Some people treat prayer as if it's just something off the cuff. It's no big deal. I'll I'll fire something up to God and we'll see if he's really listening. The Lord says, if you believe that he is, you have to diligently seek him. And in addition to that, You come with confidence. Another word for faith. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. Faith in what? Faith in who he is. Faith in his power. Faith in his interest. Faith in his investments, his care, his concern, his love for us. The reality of who our God is, I am confident when I come in prayer, and if I am not confident, I don't 
have the right to even put a request before him. Why? Without faith, it is hard to please God. It is impossible to please God. And the last one, he's very clear about, look down here at verse 18. If I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear. Some people just lack purity. We want to live sinful lives. We want to do the things that we want to do without the restraint of God's word, without our, our submission to his will and to his authority. And then we say, well, now I'm going to pray. Well, God didn't answer my prayer. What's wrong with God? Nothing's wrong with God. There's something wrong with you. If I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. Very quickly, go back to 1 John chapter 3. 1 John, the third chapter. And with this I will close. Pastors say that to get your attention. It is meaningless. 1 John chapter 3, verse 21. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence toward God. And whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do those things that are pleasing in his sight. All right. The psalmist makes it clear. If God is not answering our prayers, it's not because he doesn't have the power or the capability. It's not because he's not interested in you. It's not because he has not made an investment. It's because there is something wrong in our lives. We may be asking the wrong things. Remember what James said? You have not because you ask not. You ask and receive not because you ask amiss. Why? That you might consume that which you are requesting upon your own lusts. Now, when we hear lust, we think of, of the things in the, the uh, sexual realm. No, this is any kind of an unbalanced desire. I want this. I need this. I need to be set free. I need deliverance from this. And God is saying, no, you don't. My job on you has not been done yet. Here's what I can promise you. Everything that God does is right. And when we bring our requests into line with his will, then he's free to answer everything we ask. Let's stand. Father, almost 3,000 years ago, a man recorded for us his observations about you. And he called the world to praise you and to exalt you. Father, he had experienced all of these things that we've spoken about this morning. And now today, we come to you learning the same lessons, realizing, Father, that if our prayers are going unanswered, it's not your fault. Prayer works when it's in line with your will, when it's offered in faith, when 
the right sacrifice, the sacrifice of Christ is the basis upon which we come before you. And our lives are clean. Father, help us to understand that you are a good God and everything you do is good. Amen.